This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. A lot of school districts have partnerships with local police departments to provide school resource officers. But did you know that some school districts actually have their own police forces? That's been the case for the Los Angeles Unified School District since 1948. And this isn't some watered-down version of a public safety organization. LA's school cops have military-grade weapons and armored vehicles. And the department's come under fire recently for the way its officers use force on students. Some people are saying that at least some of the $70 million that the district spends on its cops might be better directed to other needs. Now, the authors of a research-based report are seeking to offer some context to those who want to understand what schools are getting for all that money and what they're not getting when they don't invest in other areas of student need. The report is based on nearly 10 years of incident reports, and it has several very disconcerting findings. Perhaps the most concerning is this. While school enrollment has decreased in L.A. in the past decade, funding for police in the district has increased. And yet students still don't feel safe. In particular, black students don't feel safe. Joining us to talk about the report is the brief's lead author, Eliani Edwards. She is a Ph.D. student in the Human Development and Psychology Division of UCLA's Graduate School of Education and a former K-6 classroom teacher. Eliani Edwards, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Can we start with something that just, well, it just sort of floored me. Some school districts have their own police forces. Is this common? It is. And and I think that we're seeing that now on a national scale. I don't think it's something that kind of everyday folks really realized until this became such a huge conversation these past couple months. We're realizing that school police are a lot more prevalent than I think a lot of people might have thought. And that a lot of school districts have their own police forces. I think that this is something that has been around for a very long time. But I think we're just now realizing just how common it is and how much of a pressing issue it is for us to talk about. And I guess, you know, I have always thought, you know, like I know that schools have school resource officers, that school districts contract with local police agencies. I hadn't wrapped my mind around an agency within a school district. I know that those exist on a lot of university campuses. There's got to be some pluses and minuses to this, right? Like, I I suppose, like, on the one hand, a police force that's within a school district is more attuned to the specific needs of students. But on the other hand, it's a police force within a school district. I mean... I think what you said in terms of there being pluses and minuses, I think even the plus is an assumption. There isn't any conclusive empirical research that actually states that having police officers in schools and associated with school districts brings any benefit. Uh, Research has documented that there's actually a lot of harm that can come from it, particularly for students of color and communities of color, in that it has the potential to perpetuate a lot of racial inequality and funnel students into the school-to-prison pipeline. And so your research team, you wanted to look at this issue. You looked at lots of incident reports going back to 2010. When you looked at the incident reports from the Los Angeles Unified School District, what really jumped out at you? Yeah, so I think the number one thing that popped out is that there has been a 111% increase in incidents and that most of those incidents have been related to suicidal behaviors and exposure to trauma. That 
was really concerning for us when we were looking at that, particularly because of what you mentioned earlier, which is that enrollment has been decreasing, but school funding has been increasing. So we're seeing that the most prevalent issues are around suicidal behavior and trauma, which aren't issues that police officers are equipped to address. So it makes us question, how are we mitigating these issues that we're seeing have been on the rise across the past decade? And we're not seeing a commensurate increase in funding for support services that do address those mental health issues, not like we've seen the increase in funding for school-based policing. Yes, absolutely. And we're seeing that actually as a national trend where, what is I think it's about 35 million students across the country attend a school that has police, but is missing some type of student support staff. So either a nurse, a psychologist, a counselor, social workers. So some very essential services for students and their families are missing in schools, but yet funding is being allocated towards police. And when those people are missing, I assume that what the solution becomes then is that the police officer who is there, who is funded, starts to bring that thing into their purview, right? So like a mental health issue might not be something that is best addressed by a police officer, but there are police officers on campus and so they get brought into that part of the world. Oh, absolutely. It's very likely that police officers are responding to incidents that are beyond the purview of their expertise. And that can be really dangerous. You know, there's research that shows that Students with disabilities, particularly Black and Latino students with disabilities, boys specifically, are disproportionately arrested at school. And they're among the most likely to be arrested at school. And a lot of times when you think about the fact that we don't have student support staff, it makes you wonder if they're being disciplined as a result of some of the symptoms of their disabilities. And I think that that's what tends to happen when you have police officers responding to incidents versus trained professionals. You start to discipline students because of the symptoms of their disability, because you don't know how to interpret behaviors. You don't know how to address them. You don't know how to de-escalate them because that's not what you're trained to do. This feels like a point that people from all sides of an issue could get behind because you don't want... I mean, even if you're like you're super gung ho support policing, you don't want police officers doing things that they're not trained to do. That's not fair to the officer. It's certainly not fair to the children who are involved in this. Exactly. And then a lot of the conversation has been, oh, well, we just need to train officers better. And it's like, well, why? Why can't we just provide this training to the folks who are already committed to doing this work, who are already contracted to do this work, who have expertise in these fields? You surveyed students about their perceptions of their school's police officers. And the perception of these officers, particularly among Black students, is not real positive. 67% of the Black students surveyed said they believed police officers escalated situations. 73% said the officers were overly aggressive. 60% said the officers were rude. These are not positive numbers. Yeah. And I think, especially now, what we're seeing, a lot of the questions that I've been getting is like, well, why now? Why are we talking about this now? And frankly, police brutality is a national conversation right now. So naturally, you start looking at spaces where police are. Where are police placed in communities? And schools is one of those places, particularly 
low-income urban schools that have a lot of black and brown students. And those are the communities and the populations that are most vulnerable and that experience police brutality the most. And so when you look at schools, schools are not in isolation of their communities. So students are not only experiencing these traumas in their communities and seeing it play out in the media, but now they're also in school buildings, fearful of the possibility that it might also happen to them in school. You tracked the sorts of issues students were facing in these incident reports. And what you found is that these issues, a lot of them are very non-security related. They're going way up. That's not where funding is going right now. What we did was we tracked all of the incidents that have been documented under the electronic tool that LAUSD uses to document incidents that impact school functioning. So it can be anything from the loss of some administrative keys to issues of harassment at school. And we compiled all of those incidents and then disaggregated them into what we called responder categories. And we came up with five. So issues that would seem as if they would be responded to by police versus counseling services versus a nurse versus the district versus some school leadership. And what we saw is that there was a 906% increase in issues that would be best responded to by counseling staff at school. That's just in 10, less than 10 years, right? Yes. Yes. So that's huge. And ultimately, LAUSD did defund the school police department. I think it was by 25% for the upcoming school year. And what the school board said is that that money would be going towards providing those services to students with a focus specifically on supporting Black students and the schools that were most in need. You mentioned earlier you found lots and lots of instances of suicidal behavior, this huge jump in the number of incidents. Can you attribute that to more need or just a better recognition on the parts of teachers and faculty members and counselors and everybody else that there is a need? I think probably a little bit of both. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that mental health is starting to become a more popular conversation now and a a more prevalent conversation among educators, among families. I think it's something that we're just all attending to more than we have in the past. So I do think that it's something that folks are just paying more attention to. But I also think it has a lot to do with the fact that the numbers are showing that this is an increased phenomenon. You know, we're seeing suicide rates for for teens, particularly teens of color, at historic levels right now. And what are the resources like for supporting students dealing with those issues as it stands? I mean, they're not looking very promising in terms of like school levels. We have overworked counselors at schools that even have counselors. So according to the American School Counselor Association, It recommends that the counselor to student ratio be at 250 to 1. And currently, the ratio in LAUSD is 500 to 1. So we definitely need some more counseling services. Mental health issues in LAUSD has increased by over 900%. So definitely, it's showing that there's a huge gap in between what the needs are and what the services being provided are. So I think... We just have to stay hopeful and really hold our leadership accountable to allocating funds the way that they have said that they would do moving forward. 
one of your report's recommendations is to invest in more mental health services. You noted that LAUSD has started to take some steps in that direction. Another is to listen to Black students and invest in the things that make them feel safe. I think a lot of people might say, yeah, well, okay, how are you going to pay for that? One of the things LAUSD has done for this upcoming school year is to reinvest funding that it's currently dedicated to policing. Do you think that that was or that is a decision that can be made by school districts everywhere and should be made by school districts everywhere? Absolutely. The reality is that there is no job at a school that requires a police officer, period. There's no job that requires a police officer. I think police officers are brought into schools when there are structural issues at the school that folks then feel police are the only people who are able to address. So when we're talking about policing in schools, we're talking about more than just, oh, how do we help support our students? How do we create a safer environment? What we're talking about is structural issues, structural inequities in schools and systems of thought that have been very oppressive to communities of color in particular. So when we're talking about what do we invest our money in, we invest our money And we invest funds and resources into the things that we know are going to make people successful and that we know are going to empower people and families in communities. And the things that Black students are saying will make them feel safer, they're not outrageous. They're saying, we want college and career readiness. We want to be able to have jobs over the summer. We want mental health support. We want recreational activities and arts programs and more people to talk to and to build relationships with. And I I don't think that that's not irrational. It's not unreasonable. I think we just have to really get out of this mind frame that punishment is the only way. Discipline is the only way. And we need to start thinking about, well, how can we literally dismantle systems that have created so much inequity and so much oppression and rethink what it looks like for our children to be in school and to flourish in school? You're listening to Undisciplined. We'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned. We're going to turn now to Louis Pasteur. You know the guy. Vaccination, fermentation, pasteurization, and also this thing called chirality. Pasteur first uncovered this principle of biology while inspecting the chemical buildup in a wine vat. And what he noticed was that just like how a person's right hand and left hand reflect each other in shape, but don't line up when you stack them, molecules are either right or left-handed. But Pasteur didn't know why this happened. And for 170 plus years, this question has absolutely stumped scientists. The journalist Dayton Olander has been reporting on a new study about a possible cause of chirality for the first ever undisciplined deep dive on UPR.org. Dayton, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so Louis Pasteur, he's never able to explain this. This guy solves all sorts of other mysteries, but not this one. But he did have a hunch. What was his hunch? Yeah, so when he discovered chirality, he thought that some dissymmetric force that was not yet understood during his time may have played a role, just because it didn't seem like any earthly pressures could have explained why life chose to be homochiral instead of displaying both handedness in biological molecules. And you just said the word earthly pressures. It turns out that indeed outer space plays into this new theory. 
Yeah, and so Noemi Globus and her co-author, Roger Blanford, are two physicists, and they believe that cosmic rays in ancient times could be the factor that Pastor was thinking of. And so these cosmic rays shone down on Earth, and when they interacted with Earth's atmosphere, they broke down in these secondary particles, which were polarized. And so these polarized particles, they think, had more of a mutagenic effect on one form of life than the other um, in terms of chirality, and thus you know, obviously promoted one form of life over the other, and that's why we have homochirality. This is part of the mystery to why life exists on Earth, which brought you to this guy, David Deemer. Tell me about this guy. Yeah, so he's a professor out at one of the University of California's, and he kind of served as a mentor for this project. And so both Globus and Blanford, as I said, are physicists, and this project, it takes a lot of different disciplines, and it takes mixing of disciplines in order to get things done. And so Deemer is a biologist, and so he was able to help them set up some tests that they're going to run in the future to try to help prove their theory. And what are those tests going to look like? So he suggested they run an Ames test, which is where they subject a helical particle, in this case it's going to be salmonella, two different forms of polarized radiation to see what kind of effect that has. And hopefully they can somewhat replicate what they think happened all those billions of years ago when life was deciding which handedness it was going to take. That's Dayton Olander. You can find his report on a new study on the origin of chiral molecules at upr.org. Dayton, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Undisciplined on Utah Public Radio. I'm Matthew LaPlante, and today we're talking about a new report on school policing with Eliani Edwards. The way you've proposed making those decisions about how the Los Angeles School District reinvests its resources is through something called the Students' Equity Needs Index. Can you talk a little bit about what the index is and how it's used? That's not something that I came up with. So the Student Equity Needs Index was basically a formula for local control funding. Folks were asking LAUSD to adopt the Student Equity Needs Index as a primary means for identifying the highest needs schools and allocating local control funding investments to those schools. And it began with focusing on the highest needs elementary, middle, and high schools to improve enrollment and increase funding for them. The idea here is not just to willy-nilly take money away from policing and spread it across, but have a really formal process for determining where the needs are greatest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the police are the only folks who will experience having funds decreased. I think it's just a, a way of looking at how do we allocate funding towards schools in a way that is equitable and in a way that is going to help support those with the most needs. Defunding the police isn't actually a new concept. It's become a rallying cry among a lot of people advocating for social justice in recent months. But we should note here, it doesn't necessarily mean abolishing police. It means putting money where it has the best overall effect for health and public safety. You've been working on this report for a long time. You've been thinking about these issues for a long time. And I'm wondering what it's like working on this and then seeing sort of at the same time as you were preparing to publish this report, this growing movement calling for some of the very things you're proposing. 
I mean, on a personal level, I think it's affirming, but on on a more systematic level, I think it is definitely something that brings about a lot of hope and that really drives the work. And, and more than anything, it's seeing that this needs to come from all angles. So it's definitely a very empowering experience when kind of the two worlds combine to to kind of drive this mission for what we want for the future. You started your career in K-6 schools. What was your experience with police in schools like? And what was your students' experience and relationship with police like? I remember specifically, I guess, just a few incidents where there were some students at my school who had severe special needs and emotional needs. And I often saw them being addressed via discipline versus through nurturing ways that provide support. And the same thing with families. I think the students are responded to with harsh, punitive discipline. And then the families are ostracized and made to feel very ashamed when in reality they just need a lot of help. Teachers become, well, they, they become a part of the system, right? Everybody eventually becomes a part of the system and it becomes normalized. How do we unnormalize the presence of police in schools? I think it happens on several different levels. I think from the leadership perspective, it starts with a lot of structural changes, right? So when you remove police from schools, inherently it's going to change the way your school functions, your protocols function in schools, right? Because police end up responding to incidents because police are present. When police are not present, now you're forced to figure out how you're going to respond to certain incidents that you may have relied on the police to respond to previously, whether or not they were the best to respond. They were there and they were responding. So I think what we're talking about is rethinking structures, rethinking practices, and shifting mindsets in schools. Well, let's talk a little bit about research, though, and the connectivity between research and practice, because you did start your career in K-6 school, so you're a practitioner, but you have this passion for understanding and better communicating the overarching issues that really only research can get to. How do you make sure that as a researcher, you're still viscerally connected to the experience of students in schools? Well, me personally, I just have never lost connection with schools. Even upon starting my program, I was still doing some intervention teaching at some local schools. I work with teachers as an instructional coach. Now, a lot of my research comes from collecting data in schools. I think just staying connected. It's very easy to kind of get caught up in the ivory tower if you allow yourself to. But I really work hard to stay connected to youth and teachers and classrooms. And I've done that throughout my academic career. You have a personal stake in this. I mean, we all have a personal stake in this, but you're a mother and you are a caregiver for your brother as well, correct? Yes. Yes. Who is a young black boy. You know, I have black children. My family's a black family. And, you know, absolutely, we have stake in this. And I think so many families, we look to schools and we see that now. We look to schools to help us rear our children. And we need to do our best to make sure that our children are in the best place to be able to be the leaders of our future. What was it that initially drew you to this work? 
you know, I think my own trials and triumphs in education. So I am a first-generation citizen in this country. My parents are immigrants from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. I grew up in New York City in a low-income, disenfranchised community. And at the same time, I've been able to gain access to this whole other world via my education, right? So I've attended private universities. I'm a doctoral student now. And I think just my own experiences, my own trials and triumphs as a first-generation Black Latina woman, daughter of immigrants, has really informed how I think about systems, how I think about education, and what I want my impact to be. What were the things about your journey, the touch points, the moments of inflection that really allowed for your success and that you'd like to be able to replicate for other people? Being able to provide opportunity systemically is incredibly important. It comes first. Like growing up, I was able to access opportunities that a lot of my peers who were equally as talented, if not more, who were smarter, who just were great, you know, were great. They just weren't able to do. And, and as a result, my life outcomes thus far have just been vastly different. And I think if we are able to use education as a vehicle to provide opportunity to students who are willing and who are talented and who are ambitious and who are full of potential, we would be able to replicate success a lot more often. That's Eliani Edwards. Her team's recent report suggests that to meet student needs in Los Angeles and likely in other districts as well, leaders should consider decreasing funds for police and increasing funds for school nurses and mental health providers. Eliani Edwards, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday morning at 1030 on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>